Jim Van Dyke of Martinson Coffee was thoroughly impressed. He's inviting you to join the board of the Museum of Early American Folk Arts. That's nice. What is it? Doesn't exist yet. But I've seen the opening exhibit, uh, Whirly Gigs. Do they need a campaign? No. Philanthropy is the gateway to power. Do you say so? We need you to continue your excellence in advertising, but also to start treating this like part of a bigger business, which it is. I will. Do you understand what this means? You're going to be wearing your tuxedo a lot more. It's time for the horse to catch the carrot. Roger, would you mind? Would you agree that I know a little bit about you? A little? There are a few people who get to decide what will happen in our world. You have been invited to join them. Pull back the curtain and take your seat. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special remotely recorded and re-recorded episode of A Thing Like That, a podcast about Mad Men. As always, I'm your host, Mike Levito. And I'm Kathleen Levito. Um, and boy, does this, did, did this, did, did this episode come together, um, in a very inconvenient way? <laughs> we, uh, for some background here, so we recorded this episode about season two, episode seven, The Gold Violin, like two weeks ago. Um, and I went to go edit it, and I tried to import the clip of A Beautiful Mind, the the Mad Men theme song, um, like I do in every episode, um, but for some reason it wasn't being respond, Audacity wasn't being responsive, um, so I freaked out and force quit Audacity, and then I opened it up again, and the waveform on the Audacity file was just a flat line, which meant that everything we had talked about was completely deleted. <laughs> um, which is a bummer. It's kind of my worst nightmare as someone who is on three different podcasts. Um, uh, it's, it's not a lot of fun. And at, on top of all that, uh, all of the uh, coronavirus-type stuff happened within like those two weeks. So um, we're, we're coming to you from our apartment separated by like what like two stories of concrete i guess yeah at this point it's one. Oh yeah i am now on the fifth floor true true um so if the audio quality isn't quite what it usually is um that's 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 why it's because we're, we're doing this over skype um but uh, yeah i don't know hopefully it's okay uh but let's let, let, let's let's yeah let's get right into it um and like I said, talk about uh, season two, episode seven, the gold violin. Kathy, what are your first thoughts on this episode? I enjoy this episode. Um, I tend to like episodes that do not focus on Don Draper um, mm-hmm. because I feel like other characters are just as fun. Um, and this one takes a little bit. He takes a little bit of a backseat. He's still in it obviously but we get to focus on other characters and develop other characters especially sal and i do love um sal so 
I enjoy this one. I, I usually enjoy like little like step aways from the main storyline. Yeah, I, I guess I would agree. It, it does, I feel like, kind of um, maybe uh, tread tread some well-worn ground at this point in the series, but it, it offers a resolution to the uh, the whole um, Jimmy and Bobby Barrett saga, which I'm kind of glad about. Yes. Um, which so. it which lasts way shorter than I than I realized initially. I feel like when I watched it, it felt like it went on for way longer. But um, anyway, uh, let, let, let's get into the synopsis of this episode. It begins with Don checking out a 1970 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Um, and we talked with the salesman who convinces him to try and take it out for a test drive. Um, but as he does that, Don looks over at another car um, where another guy is checking it out. Not quite a nice car. And he has a flashback to Don as a car salesman te- from 10 years earlier. Where he's confront, where he, where he's, where he's trying to sell a car to a man and his son, but then she's, he's confronted by a woman he doesn't know. She asks if he's Donald Draper, and he says, "Yes, of course I am." And then she contradicts him, says he actually isn't. We fade back to the dealership where Don is so shaken by this memory that he ends up declining to take the test drive. As Sterling Cooper, Roger is flirting with Jane Siegel, trying to find out where she lives, but then Don shows up. Roger tries to convince Don to buy the Cadillac. Duck comes in and talks to him about Martinson Coffee, who are looking for a campaign to appeal to the youths. So Don puts Smitty and Kurt on it. They come in, read part of the Port Huron statement, and then pitch Don um, on the idea of trying to sell a feeling, not a product. At a meeting of other creators to discuss Pampers, Jane Hole comes in to hand them Don's notes. Uh, some flirting goes on between Jane and, and Ken and the whole crowd. Um, and then Harry brags that he's going to be meeting with Cooper the next day, and that there's a painting in his office that he'll probably be asked about. Jane suggests they go look at it to the horror of everyone else, but they all sneak into Cooper's unlocked office and look at the $10,000 Rothko in there. Ken shares some deep thoughts about it, trying to impress Jane, but it's Sal who actually takes the most notice. The next day, Joan hears about the sneaking about and gets upset. Ken asks Sal to read his latest story, and Sal agrees, suggesting that Ken join he and his wife Kitty for dinner on Sunday. To discuss the story. Smitty and, K- and Kurt pitch Martinson on a jingle that they say is more than a jingle, and Harry has his meeting with Cooper, who wants to talk about the media purchase, not the painting. Harry tries to talk to him about the painting, but Cooper admits he only bought it because it'll double in value over time. Back in Austin, Betty gets a phone call from Jimmy Barrett, who invites the Drapers to a party, celebrating Grin and Barrett being picked up by CBS. Back at Sterling Cooper, Duck comes in and lets Don know that they won the Martinson account. A rare sign of camaraderie between the two, Don congratulates Duck on a job well done. Jane tells Don that Cooper wants to see him, but does not want to see Duck, so he goes to Bert's office and sees Roger in there as well. Apparently, Jim Van Dyke of Martinson was so impressed by the pitch that he's going to offer Don a seat on the board of Museum of Early American Folk Art. Cooper explains this will give Don access to real power. Don, brimming with confidence, heads back to the Manhattan dealership to test drive the Coupe de Ville. Joan confronts Jane about sneaking to Cooper's office. They get into a tiff, and Joan fires Jane. Don shows up in Austin with a new car to Betty's delight. They sit in the car. She tells him about the Barrett party. They start to get intimate, but Don doesn't want to mess up their new car. Jane goes to say goodbye to Roger now that she's being fired. Roger fills her for some more and tells her that he'll handle it. On Sunday, Ken enjoys dinner with Sal and Kitty. Sal's clearly very interested in Ken and kind of ices out Kitty out of the conversation. Ken says that he has to leave, and when he's done with dinner, despite Sal's insistence that he say, Sal and Kitty argue about the way Kitty was excluded during the conversation, and Sal does his best to apologize. He pockets the lighter that Ken leaves behind. 
The Drapers have a picnic at the park where Sally asks if they're rich, and Betty says it's not so polite to talk about such things. They glitter very brazenly. Uh, the next day, after being rejected again by Jane, Ken thanks Sal for dinner and tells him that he wants to have that kind of marriage that Sal and Kitty have one day. Jane sits at her desk and is con- confronted by a steaming Joan. Jane says that she spoke with Roger and that he'll be able to keep her job, which upsets Joan. Later that night, Sal, Kitty, and Sal's mom watch TV as Sal longingly flips Ken's lighter on and off. And finally, at the store club, Don and Bobby abscond to talk business with some ABC folks, and then Jimmy approaches her and they sit approaches Betty rather and they sit down together. Jimmy intimates that he thinks something happened between Don and Bobby, which upsets Betty, so she tries to leave. He tries to hold her back. She rates him as you people. Don and Betty leave, but not before Don is confronted by Jimmy, who calls him garbage. In the Cadillac driving home, Don and Betty share an uncomfortable silence before Betty barfs all over the car. Kathleen, what theme did we go with for this episode? Insiders and outsiders. Why? Uh, we see like a lot of splits of just little little in-the-know communities and then people trying to get their way into that. Um, do we want to jump into some of those examples? Yeah. All right. So um, I'm trying to think chronologically here. Um, for example, like I think a good one is to start with um, the purchasing of the car that Don is seeing in the beginning. Um, at first glance, like he comes in, he seems like the kind of person who would buy a fancy car like that. He also has like, you know roger's business card with it or he mentions roger's name or whatever it was um and so he's kind of like in the club of buying this car um until he's taken back to like a a time where he realizes like he's not really like one with like he's not like born and raised the community who you know is relates to that type of luxury exactly yeah yeah and um it's the car. So we talked about in, in the unreleased version of this episode, um, how that, that opening scene mirrors a lot. The opening scene of the movie Quiz Show, which we talk about in our other podcast, uh, Real Life Oscar Challenge in the very first episode. So great segue if you ever want to jump on that you know, podcast as well. But, um, you know, uh, how, yeah, the car represents this kind of like trophy, basically, to Don and a, a symbol that he is. He, he, he's made it that, that he, he's he's attained a, a certain status that was uh, previously um, un, uh, unattainable to him. Um, but that, that causes him some degree of discomfort. And at this point, we don't really know why we don't really know the story behind the flashback we see. But it's clear that as he looks at this guy who's in not as nice a suit and looking at as not as nice a car, he recognizes he's in kind of a rarefied air now. And the fact that, you know, Roger sent him there and that, you know, the, the dealer recognizes Roger's business card, um, lets him know that he's, he's sort of like in an inner circle now. And he's not, at the beginning at least, not incredibly comfortable with that fact. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. but he, 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 he does get more comfortable with it, right? Um, you know, with the whole Martinson thing, uh, when he gets invited onto the board of the Museum of Early American Folk Art, um, Bert has this sort of great, not quite monologue, where, where he talks about, you know, you philanthropy is sort of the gateway to power, and you've been invited uh, to basically, you know, mingle with all these well-off and influential people, so, like, do that. Like, you know, he says literally, like, take your seat. Like, this is your chance. You have ascended, and this is your chance. And after that, that's when Don's like, all right, I have arrived, so I'm going to buy the car. Um, 
and my daughter is going to ask for a rich, and I'm going to litter all over the, the park because um, no one can touch me now, right? Um, mm-hmm. He sort of becomes more comfortable recognizing himself as an insider. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's also this sort of um, very literal uh, version of the insider-outsider thing when it comes to Bert's office where Bert's kind of the ultimate insider, right? He's, he's got friends in all kinds of high up places. And this Rothko painting is also kind of like the mystery and mystique that the rest of the company has for it is, is kind of like, it's, an, it's, it's basically like another version of the car, right? Um, and the fact that they don't understand it makes them feel like outsiders even more. And they understand that hierarchy. Jane, who is new, does not. And she sees no problem of sort of like gate crashing it and just kind of like, waltzing into his unlocked office and looking at the painting, trying to understand what it is without his permission. This, of course, you know, sort of like mortifies Joan, who has played the game very well. And, you know, um, she's a she's probably, I would say, the most powerful woman at Sterling Cooper. Um, and seeing someone try and basically cut the line and kind of like not do things the way that they're supposed to do and be an outsider, but basically assert that there should be no difference between insiders and outsiders is, is galling to her, which um, is, is why she ends up firing Jane. And Jane kind of ends up proving, I don't say proving Joan right, but but she ends up um, undercutting her authority even more um, by basically appealing directly to Roger, who then preserves her job. So if, if you, you know, in kind of the quote-unquote sane world, at least in Joan's mind, you have Roger's the insider, Joan kind of in between, Jane as the outsider. Well, Jane has kind of found a way to circumvent Joan's authority and, and ingratiate herself with Roger, which is just not the way things have been run. Mm-hmm. What, uh, had, go ahead. I was going to say it also creates its own little sect of, like, insider-outsider because um, the, the Roger relationship that like flirtationship is its own little like new dynamic um Mm -hmm. with its own benefits and then jane is outside of that or not jane sorry joan is outside of that so that it becomes this other like there's a conflict between two groups operating in the same environment exactly yeah yeah um yeah, what? Uh, how do you think this plays out in the the the, the Sal Ken Kitty situation? Um, yeah, so I think for starters, um, the thing that kind of starts Sal and uh, Ken's relationship to begin with is that they realize they um, are kind of outsiders in the same way where they're both a little bit more creative a little bit more artistically minded and they have kind of a taste for finer things um and they have an understanding of finer things and they make that connection while they're in um uh Bert's office looking at the painting um and then you know uh Sal's an artist he does all the creative work for the agency and then we find out Ken's an artist because he's a writer so they have that ability to speak and you know especially Sal who probably feels so outside most of the time because he is a gay man in a time where that was not okay. Um, and, you know, he's kind of living in secrecy his entire life, Has forms that bond of like, hey, someone who I can talk to. Um, and then they create their own little, like, the outsiders go and create their own little group. Um, or at least that's what Sal is trying to do when he brings Ken home and he, like, immediately jumps on Ken and leaves Kitty out because it's like, 
even though they're bringing Ken into their home, um, there's a pre-established dynamic one through that like first connection made through the art and everything, but also just they have like they exist in a whole different world than Kitty. Like Kitty, presumably, I don't think she, I don't know, if she's a stay-at-home wife, but you know she doesn't work in the advertising mm-hmm. industry. She doesn't know the people that they know. She doesn't come to the whatever parties and stuff that they or nights out that they go to. So she is now like pushed outside um, of her own like even marriage because her husband is you know creating a group with someone else. Yeah, she's like she is she she. It's it's interesting because she's sort of like um, I, I feel like this when when it comes to like insiders and outsiders, there's like the people who recognize the insiders, the people who recognize the outsiders, and kind of how they deal with it. Where it's like most of the insiders are very comfortable being insiders, whereas Don is sort of not that comfortable. Most of the outsiders, for the most part, are kind of comfortable being outsiders. But I think the biggest outlier to that is Kitty, who becomes very visibly frustrated with Sal that you know she felt kind of left out of the conversation. Mm-hmm during dinner, but she doesn't even realize how much of an outsider she is, right? She's perceptive on one level, where she's like, I feel like I'm being shut out. I feel like, you know, she says, you know, my friends think I'm very interesting, even though Sal doesn't seem to think so. Um, but she doesn't even realize that her husband's actually gay. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, even more, she's, she's not only shut out of like his work life, she's shut out of his like inner life and his, his personal life on some level, right? Um, so she really has no idea. Um, yeah, and just, yeah, the idea of it's interesting because it, it reminds this the whole sort of like Sal and Ken dynamic reminds me a little bit of the uh, early I believe in the first season where um, Paul kind of tries to set himself apart uh, from the uh, the rest of the group because he's like he's sent he's a beatnik and he's like a liberal you know um, and, and he, he he thinks he's kind of like you know he, he's not sort of like the the, the the frat boy they all are but like Ken's the one who actually has kind of more uh, credentials in a sense, because he's the one who's actually kind of like, he, he shows actually an understanding. To him, it's not a pretension, right? It's a hobby, and his art is a hobby, and his understanding of it seems very natural. Um, and to for him to kind of discover that in each other is kind of unique, right? Um, Ken says you're not like everyone else. Of course, he doesn't even know how that is, how, how true that is of Sal. Um, and... Uh, you know, the, what I think they do really well is just, just is showing that recognition where um, they show in, in the meeting that they kind of have that leads up to them going into the office. Someone says, I think they say, someone says, I need you and only you. And Ken goes, is that from West Side Story? And there's a really quick cut to Sal being like, oh, hey, like seeing that he, rec- he recognized the reference as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like appreciates that Ken recognized that also. Like the way they build up their relationship and they're kind of like, you know, uh, in Ken, in Ken's eyes, a bromance, and Sal's eyes, a romance, um, is is really effective. And I think really well done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of wives, we have the whole Betty dynamic that goes on. Hmm. Um. So, want to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um. So, as opposed to Kitty, who was not really in the office loop or anything. Betty is a wife that's kind of brought into that world because she is kind of that trophy wife who Don uses and to like up his status and everything. Um, But she has no clue about, you know, what's going on between um, Don and Bobby. 
And at the party that they go to to celebrate Bobby or Jimmy's, there's so many E's in this in this there show. Are. <laughs> um, to celebrate that, like she is finally like led into that little secret circle of like this is actually what goes on behind the scenes. Um, but before we even get to that, there's a whole thing: the fact that when Jimmy wants the Drapers to go to his party, he doesn't go to Don; he goes to Betty. Mm-hmm. Because um, he realizes that, like, with with Don, that's kind of like Bobby's scene. That's the management scene. That's the thing that, like, as talent, he's not really part of that dynamic, um, business-wise. And also, you know, he knows that something else is going on with those two. Um, so he kind of circumvents that normal chain of command and goes around to Betty and tries to create, like, a kinship with Betty by going by, you know, being the one to invite her specifically to the soiree. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a uh, solidarity among outsiders, though, right? Because not only outsiders, in even though Jimmy is working and is in the quote-unquote business, he really, it doesn't seem like has a lot of say in, uh, you know, his business decisions, right? It's all, it's all managed by Bobby, and, um, you know, he... he Clearly, isn't really, you know, he 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 manages to offend the people who own us, who like pay for all his career, but then he ends up kind of having to suck it up and all that. Um, but they're also outsiders in their marriage, right? It's mm-hmm. very clear to Jimmy that that Bobby is keeping things from him. Uh, but Betty has her suspicions, of course, but has thus far never really been able to pin on it, and seems like she's just kind of trying not to think about it. Um, so yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of like outside of United. But I think what's what's interesting is that I think Jimmy is maybe not comfortable in his outsideness, but he recognizes it and acknowledges it. Whereas Betty, at least up until this point, uh, does not recognize it, and then is kind of shocked when she's told that she is being shut out of Don's life in the way, right? Mm-hmm. When they have that conversation at the party, um, and and she's just like, I don't want to hear this, and tries to get away, and he tries to keep her there and all that. It's it's partly because, you know, it's just an upsetting thing to hear that your spouse would be cheating on you. And it's also because, you know, the things she thought were she, the things she thought were, she understood and was clued into, she clearly is no longer anymore. And if she couldn't recognize what was going on, then and, be, and Jimmy could. What else is she not recognizing? What else isn't she thinking about? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's also uh, anything else on, on Betty and Jimmy? Well, that's pretty much all I got. Yeah. The other thing is that Jimmy, Jimmy sort of like gets, there's also this theme of sort of like, you know, outsiders disturbing insiders and kind of getting one, one over on them, which Jimmy kind of does. You know, there's a whole scene at like the code check where Jimmy's like, you know, you're garbage, you know, go to a whore, don't, don't step out with another man's wife, all that. Um, you know, he, he kind of, he, he's able to kind of like get one over on Don and at least with the awkward conversation, which leads to Betty throwing up all over Don's shiny new car, right? Jimmy probably doesn't even realize what happened, but the ripple effect of Jimmy's actions is that the symbol of Don's insiderism gets tarnished. Um, and it's really all his fault when you think about it. Um, so, yeah, the, the other big one is is sort of the youth in Martinson, right? Um, there's this kind of ironic relationship between Martinson Coffee and, and the young people they're trying to market to where the young people relish the idea of being outsiders and being excluded from mainstream culture, which is like a big problem if you're trying to sell them a product. Because <laughs> if you're a product, you want to sell the most of anything, which means you don't really want to be an outside to the culture you want to be inside it, so everyone's using it. 
Um, but in an odd way, now Martinson wants to be an outsider because that means that they'll get you know young people to buy it. Um, and so Don views Smith and Smitty as outsiders, um, you know, partly because they're not really full-time uh, Sterling Cooper employees. They're um, contractors. And, and they take a lot of pride in their outsider. Like the Port Huron statement was kind of like, you know, the founding document basically of the counterculture, you know, elicited all these demands for like a freer and more democratic society. And, you know, Smith and Smith think, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of like Paul. They think they're kind of like the cool hit beatniks. Um, but they're at the end of the day working for, you know, this big corporation that's working for other big corporations so they can sell things like coffee and diapers and, uh, cigarettes really. Right. There, there's really nothing rebellious about what they're doing. Um, and yet they still kind of take pride in that. And when, you know, what I think is so funny is when they're like, Oh, this is like more than a jingle. It's really not like, I don't understand what made, what made the different, the jingle they wrote different than any other jingle outside that. Maybe it sounds like more like an actual song. Um, but you know, Don says when one is an Indian country, one needs a man who knows Indians. So kind of this idea of like, there may be a culture that you think is kind of foreign to you, and so you need someone who understands that. And they view sort of the youth as foreign to people like Marx, and, and even though that might place them as the outsiders, even though, you know, it's very likely that the people of Sterling Cooper and Marx think they're right and the kids are wrong, they still need someone who is at least sympathetic with the kids to translate what Marx wants to them. Uh, so it ends up in this weird thing where the insiders now want to act more like the outsiders. Mm-hmm. Anything else on that? Um, I do not think so. Yeah, so I guess there are sort of like other things, sort of like little, little bits and bobs, you know, where, where this idea of insiders and outsiders is illustrated. You know, we have Don is called to uh, that meeting with Roger and Bert um, when he and Duck are celebrating the Mar- winning the Martinson account. And, um, James like, oh, you know, uh, Mr. Cooper wants you in his office. And I was like, oh, we'll be there. And it's like, oh, no, it's like, just just you, Don, not Duck. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Don's literally being invited inside to an office that Duck is not. Like, that's a very literal depiction of an insider and an outsider. He's literally kept outside of the room where it's happening, basically. Um, and even though Don says, like, you know, I didn't do it alone, like, the insiders don't care. Duck is still an outsider to them for whatever reason. They're just, like, not a big fan. Um you know, there, there's Don. Don says uh, to um, when, when Betty tells Don that they're being invited to the Jimmy's party, he's like, oh, they should have gone through my secretary, which is, again, another sign of sort of the, the circumvention of the insidery order. Um, we saw when 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 Ken visits uh, the Romanos, um, Sal kind of imitates Ken's behavior with, you know, Ken asks for a beer. And so then Sal picks up a beer and starts drinking that. Um you know, Harry's worried that he's going to look like an outsider by not understanding the Rothko. Um, Bert says that about the Rothko's, like, nobody's ever asked me, probably because it's not because it's none of their business. You know, it'd be sort of violation of the order of things to ask him what he thinks. Betty talks about how celebrities make her shy, which kind of downplays her insideriness to a degree. Um, and yeah, that that's kind of that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Um, I don't think so. Cool. Ready to move on to our awards? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the Pete Campbell Memorial Worst of the Week. Interesting note, Pete is not in this episode, um, which 
might make it the only episode he's not in. I actually don't know. But um, who who do you have for worst of the week? I'm trying to remember exactly. I Jane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why? She's kind of like a jerk. Like she's like she's taking advantage of people when she knows it. Um, I just like I don't I don't like her in this episode. She's a little brat. She is, um, you know, she 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 does something wrong, and then she tries to pull a bunch of strings to make sure she doesn't get punished for it. And and you know, go, goes above Jones. You know, Joan had kind of every right to fire her, right? She was snooping around somebody else's office, even if Joan's motivations are partly out of jealousy. Um, Jane kind of knows what she's doing, and she's very much playing the game. And it's not a I, her, her and Peggy are like an interesting counterpoint, right? Um, where Peggy is kind of putting her head down and doing all the work, whereas Jane seems very interested in kind of like shortcuts. Um, so yeah, Jane, Jane's the worst. And then our uh, Roger Sterling Memorial best line of the week. Uh, do you have one? I remember you had a good one. I do. So this is... Uh, the day after Ken goes to Sal's for dinner, he comes in and he goes, I was going to call Kitty today, but I don't know what it's like with Italian people when you call someone's wife. Which, as Italian-Americans, we both found very funny. Yes. Um, which, you know, that's another illustrating, like, insider-outsider thing, right? Like, it's another way Sal is an outsider. Like, he's kind of like the only Italian person at the firm. Um, which then, ironically, makes Ken an outsider when he goes to his place for dinner. Are we ready for some uh, foreshadowing? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Any any you had right off the bat? Um, I mean, the budding relationship between Roger and Jane. Like, yeah. I feel like it's more... I won't say serious in this episode, but they have more, you see that they're like more connected than like casual flirting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. A, of course, a big plot point going forward. Um, I had, <laughs> um, you know, the, the Bartonson ad brags about premium beans, <laughs> which reminds me of the, um, the when eventually they score the uh, the Heinz's sauces, vinegars, and beans account, which becomes a big a big plot mm-hmm. point. Um, the dinner at the Romano's place is a little bit excuse me of a forebear to like you know I think one of the one of my favorite episodes actually, which is, is a very Pete focused episode where uh, the Cosgroves, Drapers, and Camels all get together to have dinner. This is kind of like the first, I guess, outside of the party at um, Paul's house earlier on. This is like the first example of like co-workers in someone else's house um, and in each other's company, which is always like an interesting place to see that dynamic play out. Um, this is of course, you know, Betty, Betty uh, discovering or being told about Don's unfaithfulness kind of, begins this sort of ripple effect of her slowly beginning to lose it and and him being kicked out of the house for the first time uh, of like two or three times 
and then uh that's that that's kind of it's kind of all i have yeah the only the only thing i have is not foreshadowing is that while while betty's alone at the party she's looking at a sculpture of horses and yeah she's done a lot more time at the stables so there's that <laughs> something that's like a very like loose thing um is that uh sally asks about if they're rich mm-hmm. um where she's just kind of like a very innocent way of just kind of questioning like status and everything and like moving forward she becomes a little bit more like rebellious and and pushing boundaries and stuff yeah um, so she follows in that that way of just like being i don't know she's not like a rebel really but she's just like willing to like circumvent what was laid out for her and she becomes just very questioning of her parents yes um yeah i would say so all right any final thoughts no cool well everybody you've been listening to the first skype edition of a thing like that um i'm mike levito you can find me on twitter at m or letterbox at ameramike i'm kathleen novito you can find me on instagram at rise to the sun and parody of a queen and you can find our writing on the postwriter.com you can listen to our other podcasts uh, the real life oscar challenge if you've never met lars where we talk about every best picture nominee for lifetimes as well as running mates which is about vice presidential history which i do with lars um, you can follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. And until then, try not to throw up in any cars. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs>